Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, tonight I'm here with David. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the day when I become unparalleled. So am I. But for now I am paralleled. Um, so that's, uh, that's good. It's good. It's good. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, um, I'm going to introduce the book a bit, uh, and then I'll read about a, I think it's about a ten minute section. Martin. Yeah. yeah, okay, I, rec- I, I recognize uh, you from, yeah, the social media, that's, that's awesome, okay. Um, and then I'll read about a 10-minute section of it, and then uh, David and I are going to chat. Oh, all right, okay. All right, sounds good. Um, the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History was really pushing the Hope Diamond when I was there in D.C., and I... As a result, really wanted to see the Hope Diamond. Uh, the Hope Diamond has its own room there, uh, which which struck me as a little arrogant because the diamond's that big. Um, which is still well, no, it's actually about that big, uh, which is still pretty big for a diamond. But yeah, a whole room devoted to it, the Hope Diamond room, and there was a line um, uh, in order to see it. Uh, you had to wait in this line. Um, the Hope Diamond's on this pillar beneath a lucite cube on this blue velveteen rotating platform. And uh, I waited in line, and as I was about to step up and bear witness, uh, these two seven-year-old girls elbowed me out of the way. Um, I, think they were, I think they were sisters, uh, because they wanted to see it first. Um, it really was the most adorable mosh pit ever. Uh, the Hope Diamond was boring. Um, but downstairs, uh, encased in this thermoplastic coffin, was um, a specimen of a giant squid. And that interested me. Um, but what interested me more was uh, the photograph uh, on a pillar next to said thermoplastic coffin. And it was the first ever photograph ever taken of the giant squid in 1874 in Newfoundland by a guy named Reverend Moses Harvey. Um, that's all the three-line caption told me. Uh, here... Uh, Here's an image of it. Um, this is my kindergarten teacher <laughs> mode. Uh, that round thing into which the tentacles are coiling is Moses Harvey's bathtub, which means uh, this giant squid specimen that um, thrashed itself to death in fishermen's herring nets was transported from one bay to another, then to Moses Harvey's house in downtown St. John's, Newfoundland at 3 Devon Row, wedged through his front door, brought into his bathroom, draped over the curtain rod so its full size could be displayed, and then the fateful fro- photograph was taken, and I became obsessed with that backstory, um, how that happened, why that happened. I guess I became obsessed with uh, Moses Harvey's obsessions. Um, Can I share a squid fact with you? Yes. Um, (laughs) All right, okay. Uh, uh, There are so many. I'll share this one. Um, 
I've got a few marked, but I really like this one. This one might be my favorite, um, even more than the fact that um, a giant squid, depending on the part, even when uh, dead, um, hacked up, and deep fried, and then subsequently plated, still has the ability to um, inseminate the mouth of the eater. Uh, I'll just tell this fact. Um, uh, because because now this one's seducing me as I'm, as I'm saying these words. Uh, yeah, I, there, there have been numerous documented cases uh, of this occurring. And uh, the spermatophores are like these tiny little splinters that embed themselves in the meat of the mouth and have to be extracted one by one. Um, it's very painful. So the next time you order your calamari at TGI Fridays, beware. Um, beware the other shoe. Uh, all right, I'm going to read this short section uh, here. Um, as I was tracking uh, Moses Harvey's obsession, um, and as I was engaging the main threads of the book, the giant squid and, and Harvey's photograph thereof, all sorts of ancillary uh, subject matter started attaching themselves to the main thread of giant squid and Harvey's photograph. Um, one of these ancillary subjects was my long dead grandfather. And uh, to be honest with you, I did not want to write about my long dead grandfather um, because everybody does that. Um, but he just kept haunting uh, the writing process, and I tried to find a way to make it work. He just kept asserting himself on the book. So um, this section deals with him. Uh, here's what you have to know about him for this section. He um, was a musician. He was a saxophonist in a big Dixieland jazz band uh, that uh, played the Catskill Mountain Resort circuit um, way back when. It used to be known as the Borscht Belt. Um, there's that. He was born prematurely uh, in 1916, so prematurely, in fact, that he was diagnosed to die. And uh, his mother, my great-grandmother Dorothy, uh, in order to keep him alive um, once he was discharged, uh, neurotically force-fed him. Uh, they were living in this Brooklyn tenement at the time, and she would wake him uh, twice nightly um, at 1.30 in the morning and 4.30 in the morning and force-feed him white bread slathered with chicken fat. Um, and she did this basically until he was drafted. And he, he, as a result, became a fat man. So there's that. Uh, as a musician, uh, as far as I know, he wrote only one song. Uh, and as so many uh, musicians back then who wrote songs, um, he did so with the aim of starting a dance craze. Uh, the name of the song is Squid Jump. And... Um, it was predominantly instrumental, but there were two intoned lines uh, that were, the musicians, is, again, as far as I know, would take their instruments from their mouths and lead forward into their microphones and during um, a drum solo uh, intone these lines. And here are the lines. Do the squid jump. Wave your arms like this. And when they said, wave your arms like this, the dancers were supposed to wave their arms like this in tentacular fashion and then jump in box formation. Um, it never took off. Uh, one, of, one of the working titles of the book at an early stage was Wave Your Arms Like This. Um, but, but then my editor stepped in. Uh, all right, this should, go, this should go about eight to ten minutes, this, this section. So why the giant squid after all? 
How did this particular beast become the basis for our kraken? Why is it that when we think of the proverbial sea monster, the image most of us generate is one that most closely resembles the giant squid? Why is this animal the recipient of our need to mythologize? The giant squid is real, yet somehow remains simultaneously in the realm of myth. What combinatory cocktail does the giant squid embody that allows it to the human world to straddle both worlds, the actual and the legendary? Maybe it's merely a fusion of its size and its rarity. It's big, of course. But studies show that the giant squid population is fairly widespread and they've been sighted in all of our oceans. They're rare only in polar and tropical latitudes. The Nizna African elephant, by comparison, is both much bigger and much more rare. It weighs nearly 22 times more than the giant squid, and according to studies conducted by a collection of wildlife scientists working for South African national parks, there is no evidence that more than one, one Nizna elephant still exists today. In 1874, the year Moses Harvey found and photographed his giant squid, there were about 500 Nizna elephants in existence. By 1901, the year Moses Harvey died, the Nizna elephant population had already dwindled to about 30 due to decimation by woodcutters and hunters. Their numbers dwindled to 9 by 1976, the year I was born, and to 3 by 1986, the year Papa Dave died. Still, the Nizna elephant does not serve as the blueprint for any of our mythological creatures. There must be another factor besides size and rarity. Perhaps the ocean has something to do with it. Size, rarity, ocean. Is that the cocktail? Do we have to incorporate the element of the sea, the bulk of the earth of which we're not a part? But still, in our oceans, there are creatures bigger and rarer. The ocean sunfish, or mola mola, can weigh up to six times as much as a fully grown giant squid and is less widespread. Blue whales are far more endangered. Dr. Jay Barlow of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the swaggering mission statement of which claims our reach goes from the surface of the sun to the depths of the ocean floor, estimates that there are few more than 10,000 blue whales left worldwide. And they're approximately 2.5 times longer than the giant squid and 656 times heavier. Even the oarfish is longer than the giant squid by about 13 feet, and human sightings of this live fish are so few that our knowledge of their distribution depends on records of those washed ashore dead. Oarfish, sunfish, blue whale, elephant, all of them should have the giant squid beat. Do we feel compelled to mythologize the beast for the same reasons I feel compelled to mythologize my Papa Dave, who never should have lived beyond infancy, but grew to live through the army and Dixieland jazz and marriage to a woman who would later as my grandmother dye her hair orange and reported affiliations with the Jewish mafia and a penchant for flamboyant clothes like pink and yellow plaid pants and red alligator shoes and white fedoras with brown feathers coming out of them? and flamboyant cars like his infamous Gucci Cadillac painted white with gold-plated hubcaps and plush Gucci upholstery papering the outer roof 
roof and inner seats, which allowed him, he always bragged, the AOK hand sign from a cadre of New York City pimps whenever he and Grandma Ruth stopped at a traffic light, and which, after Papa Dave died in 1986, my dad sold to a Long Island dentist for 200 bucks. In 1916, The year Papa Dave was born, the mortality rate for all infants born prematurely was 21.2. Given that Papa Dave was born way, way prematurely, that rate was quadrupled. Out of 100 infants born under the same circumstances that Papa Dave was, about 85 would have died within the first few days of life outside the womb. In 1916, there were approximately 438,000 premature births reported in the U.S. If all of them matched Papa Dave's eagerness and earlyhood, that means 372,300 dead babies. If all of these babies were, as Papa Dave was, diagnosed with extremely low birth weight, which means less than 2 pounds 3 ounces, then the weight of all of those 372,300 extremely low birth weight babies who didn't make it would equal that of 1,220 giant squid, 203 sunfish, 55 Nisna elephants, or 1.86 blue whales. All of those human deaths, one complete blue whale. Mythology as cloak and winter jacket, as blanket, as salve, as handkerchief at Papa Dave's funeral, where I, ten years old, threw a single and ceremonial shovel full of earth into his open grave, where it thudded and echoed on the surface of his coffin, scattered into such small sand over its sides. My cousins followed suit, then my uncle, then my dad. I remember no flies, Afterward, in the funeral home, smoked salmon and small sweets. I watched out the window as a bulldozer driven by a man in a sleeveless shirt finished the job in under a second. One human shovelful of dirt into a grandfather's grave is to the weight of a 1916 extremely low birth weight baby, as the bulldozer's capacity is to the weight of the giant squid. Until 86, though, prematurely born Papa Dave beat the evolutionary odds and natural selection process to produce my dad, who also should have never been born, who grew to produce me, who also should never have, and who grew to boyhood to sit on his papa's lap on that screened-in porch of the Palm Springs Phase 2 Margate, Florida retirement condo. As Papa Dave peeled off his undershirt, shook the boy off, turned his back, and asked the rapt seven-year-old, did I ever tell you how I got this scar? (laughs) I remember examining the puff circle of pinkish-brown on Papa Dave's lower back just to the left of his spine. It hung there the size of a nickel. You can touch it, he said, and I was relieved. He knew me. He knew I wanted to touch it. It was warm and smooth and smelled of cigar tobacco and musk aftershave, or maybe that was his breath, his neck, his triple chin rough with stubble. Well, it was still under my finger, he said. I was swimming in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Japan, and one of those big squids got me, wrapped its tentacles right around me. But you know how I can float? 
And I did. Back floating and reading, back floating and reading in so many public pools. Um, he used to float for two hours straight um, uh, with one hand behind his head and a book in the other um, without breaking the back float. It was miraculous, especially because I can't swim. So I, I thought it was amazing. Um, so it only got one sucker on me right there, he said, putting his hand over mine, which was o- over his scar, before I floated away. Ask your grandma. She was there too. And my grandma rolled her eyes and said something about his smoking too many cigars. And my little sister told me that Papa Dave told her that the scar was a result of a rhinoceros attack in Africa. (laughs) And Papa Dave told me stories of huge octopi that would suck sailors into their mouths where they would live like marbles on octopus tonsils for the rest of their days, forming culture and colony inside the great beast. They built bakeries in there, he would say, and roads. I would have delicious nightmares and the next night ask for more. And the next night, he might tell me that he got the scar while escaping from such a monster, that its suction cup sucked out a bit of his marrow and even a knuckle of bone from his spine. And he would tell me that I inherited my own bad back from him. That uh, this affliction stemmed not from the drugs that my father abused while conceiving me, but from some microscopic, amniotic version of a giant squid that grew inside of him after the attack, replacing the excised marrow, which he then passed on to my father, which was then passed on to me, and which I will, he stressed with dejected eyes, pass on to my own male children." As a child, I imagined such a thing swimming with my fetal self inside my mother's womb, telling me secrets, acting the bad influence. Grandma Ruth, then pre-Alzheimer's, later told me that Papa Dave received the scar after being shot in the back by German soldiers during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And I wonder if, when face down in the forests of the Ardennes Mountains, he confused the soil there with the floor of the Brooklyn tenement of his childhood, if he expected Dorothy, his mother, to approach fat-armed and force-feed him. He was counted among the 88,000 U.S. casualties during that battle and was unable to walk for months afterward, was told by army doctors that he'd never walk again. But he did that too. Beat the odds became strong enough to break the ribs of my grandma while hugging her after returning home from the war, and strong enough to hold a saxophone again. The same one he played when he wrote a song about a squid and wooed the girl who was to become my grandmother, who was to become the one to tell me the truth behind the myth just before losing herself to the ocean of a deteriorating brain. Thanks. I'll leave it there. Hey, thanks, David. All right. So, so we're going to talk for, I don't know, half an hour or so, and then we will open it up to some questions from the audience. And then after that, there'll be book buying and book signing opportunity, right? Um, I'm just going to set up my little timekeeping device there. So, um, so I wanted to, I was, I wanted you, you know, to get a taste. People, I wanted people to get a taste for the book because it is a, an idiosyncratic book. It's an odd book, my favorite kind. Um, and so, 
You talked a little bit about the, the draw of the idea, um, but how about, how did the book develop? I mean, at what point, you know, it's one thing to sort of have a, uh, start to become obsessed with um, the giant squid and become obsessed with Harvey and his obsession with the giant squid. It's another thing entirely to turn it into a book. Can you talk a little bit about how the book developed? First, how the book developed, and then we, I want to talk about how the book developed into this Sure. Form. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, uh, I did just copy down that three-line caption, and uh, as, as any good researcher would do when when he or she got home, um, I, I went on to Google and uh, <laughs> looked up Moses Harvey and um, uh, found that uh, there was a lot written about Moses Harvey and even more written about the giant squid. Um, but no one had really uh, gone forth and attempted to trace the logistics that informed the taking of this particular photograph um, and focused, well, solely on that um, or... I can't say solely, but primarily um, on that. And so uh, I thought I was going to get a five-page essay out of it. Um, but I tumbled down the rabbit hole uh, of research and um, fell in love with the research um, and the process and all of these uh, uh, facts that I was uncovering. And um, eventually I got hooked up with Moses Harvey's great-granddaughter, great-great-granddaughter, actually, um, who, as luck would have it, was running... Uh, the archives um, at the Center for Newfoundland Studies at Memorial University in St. John's, which is um, a good place uh, for somebody who wants to find, well, non-traveling archives on Moses Harvey and the Giant Squid. So um, she was sending me, you know, one fascinating scan after another. Um, but of course, she couldn't send me um, everything. And eventually, I lit up for Newfoundland, and that kind of opened up where the book went to. Um, just a brief, yeah. How about let's talk about? I mean, the form is um, is idiosyncratic. It is a book length essay, although it is broken up into four parts. I want to ask you about that. Why break it up into four parts rather than just have it be one long, unbroken, continuous essay? Actually, let's do that first, and then we'll. We'll, oh, okay. we'll, we'll move from there into some of the other stuff. Um, I have a good editor, mm-hmm. uh, and um, she suggested um, breaking it into four parts, um, uh, making it a bit more palatable, um, I guess, uh, for uh, for a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a book-length segmented essay. Some segments are long, some segments are really short, um, with no break except... Um, asterisks here and there right. uh, and so um, the breaking it up into four um, digestible parts um, uh, essentially made the book um, well ideally a bit more digestible um, gave you some points of reference in the middle it's true and, and, and um, basically yeah and, and so my, my editor is wonderful she was pointing out certain thematic uh, um, uh, subject matter that I was engaging um, in these four parts uh, I guess I didn't know they were four parts until it, essentially she pointed them out to me um, and so broke them according to that um, issues of commerce um, issues of uh, uh, cultural expressions of pain um, uh, it's a, one of the ancillary subje- uh, subjects that comes into the book and it was broken there uh, too and I guess then sort of an intro and a conclusion right um, so how did I mean in terms of putting it together you, you know it could have been a straight account of sort of Harvey and the squid and sort of um, the mythological character of the squid right because sure. it is as you say it's a fascinating thing it's not like it's an unknown animal it's not like it hasn't been seen right. um, you know when that video was shot uh, what two years ago of, of it in its yeah. natural habitat that was the first time we'd seen it swimming in its in its natural habitat but it wasn't like it was a, a you know a legendary cr- creature in the sense of, of the kraken, right? Sure. Well. Um, so it could have just been that. 
What led you? Did you know early that it was going to take this kind of um, elusive form? Was that something that developed in the writing? How did that? How did that pro- progress? I've, I've always, yeah, I've always found that the muse arrives during the process and mm-hmm. not beforehand. So I had no idea where it was going to go. Um, honestly, like I really thought I was sitting down to write five pages, mm-hmm. and then four hundred fifty pages later, I found that I had two hundred <laughs> pages to cut. Um, and so I. Uh, 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 I, I guess, uh, I, I felt that, I mean, so much had been written about the squid um, before we called it the squid. I mean, even Moses Harvey wrote so much about the squid. Um, it actually, he wrote about it before he ever actually saw one. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. 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 Um, it, it actually, I mean, it, it belonged to the church, really, before um, science began to interrogate. Uh, a disproportionate number of ecclesiastics were obsessed with the giant squid and um, wrote about it. It was known as the devil fish before mm-hmm. it was known as, as the giant squid. Um, and it was this uh, cautionary tale that was um, brought up in, in sermons and things like this. Um, and it know, is. I mean, you touch on it a bit, but it is sort of the the inspiration for the Kraken or the idea yeah. that, you know, this whatever we think of in terms of sea monsters, that perhaps this was what people were looking at when they talked about sea monsters. A- absolutely. Um, Pliny the Elder wrote right. about it. Um, Aristotle wrote about it. Um, Carolus Linnaeus, the godfather mm-hmm. of binomial nomenclature in his Systema Natura, um, in the first edition, he actually included the giant squid. Um, in his when he set out to you know um, on that seemingly impossible task to classify all things in nature, um, he actually included the giant squid in there, but was so ridiculed by his peers that um, he combed it out of the second edition. But he was he was right. Uh, I'm a digressive sort of guy. Uh, I, I guess um, it's sort of the I, nature of that. It is. <laughs> I mean, I I come from a poetic background, and um, there's this. Um, I don't know whether to call it a poem or a lyric essay or what this thing is, but um, there's this uh, poet um, or lyric essayist, Alberto Rios, who wrote um, this piece called Some Extensions on the Sovereignty of Science. And uh, in that piece, he talks about, um, as uh, as a writer, uh, the duty of the writer is to turn away from, he calls it the explosion, or to turn away from the thing um, about which we are most obsessed. Um, because when something explodes, it, it's bright and it makes a loud noise, and our instinct is to turn toward it. But everybody turns toward it, and everybody can tell you what happened there. But who's looking the other way? Um, and so, what happens when we turn our back on the explosion? What do we see there? And what we see in the opposite direction um, invariably will comment on said explosion, um, and it'll draw some sort of odd chalk outline around it. Um, I guess the trick was finding the right blend of chalk to to evoke the body. Uh, so. um. You bring in ice cream. You bring in your own experience driving an ice cream truck. You bring in your grandfather. We just heard. Um, we just heard about your grandfather. You bring in um, all sorts of mythology and natural history. You bring in a ton of uh, meditations on the nature of mythology and the building of mythology. How important? Or, uh, well, was that idea of mythology important from the very beginning, or did that evolve as part of the process? Um, that that actually was um, uh, there from the beginning. Uh, I. It, 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 it's a deceptively simple question, but whenever I begin with a subject, um, I always ask, what does it mean? Um, what does the giant squid mean um, in various contexts? What does it mean to us? Why, do we, um, why have we greeted it um, as we've greeted it? Um, you know, um, for, you know, throughout, throughout history, I guess, throughout our history um, up until the present day. And... Uh, 
why and, and you know of, of course um, the question why do we choose to mythologize certain things rather than other things right. um, was uh, was a question that soon followed mm-hmm. um, what about the uh, you know one of the things that I think is really interesting too and it does I mean it's interesting to hear you sort of talk poetically because there is that sort of sense of poetic movement I mean you know again you start with the squid then you riff go off um, into a riff on ice cream you talk about sort of the history of ice cream then you because that leads you to uh, the name of a of a an early ice creamer ice creamer I guess is the word we would use right ice creamer um, which then also turns out to be the name of someone who's involved with the squid so it doubles it doubles back I mean in terms of that it feels both kind of serendipitous as you're reading but it also feels directed and I'm really curious about that relationship and uh, you know in in the work, um, I try to be open to coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I place great importance in it, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and I guess this is an admission too. I I, I feel like uh, as as writers, we have the power to manipulate connection between just about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it it just takes, I, I guess, sufficient research and what imaginative alchemy uh, or, or, or something to do it and so um, I, w- I was interested in doing that too uh, the, the ice cream stuff really came in it, um, I know it shows up in the beginning of the book but I, I found it late uh, um in the um, in the section that was engaging cultural expressions of pain, which which began with um, uh, a giant squid's tentacle, um, historically this is you know a, a, an historical account being hacked off by little Tommy Pico, this right. this twelve year old boy in uh, uh, St John's, Newfoundland, and um, the fishermen assumed since the squid uh, made no noise, um, it didn't feel pain. Since it made no sound, it didn't feel pain, um, and that helped us further other and exoticize. Um, this beast uh, it's evil because it doesn't cry out in pain even when it's bleeding it's not like us Um, and uh, that led to dealing with all sorts of um, sympathetic cravings that undergird pain and and, and all of this Um, one of them being ice cream Mm -hmm. um, for us Uh, this is flowers ice cream I mean the typical things we gift to somebody who's in pain um, because we never really can empathize with, with their pain so what do we do well, here's some ice cream. Um, here's a flower, uh, and all of this. Um, these these small beauties um, that are, I guess, have their own mythologies as well, um, right. because those are what we choose as salve, uh, mm-hmm. and that interested me too. Now you play around a lot, or I shouldn't say play around, but you work with um, a lot with sort of uh, apocryphal stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say fiction exactly, but I mean, you know, that mm-hmm. at the risk of, of giving away a, a fact that that twelve-year-old boy may or may not actually have existed, right? right? He may have been an invention on Harvey's part in right. terms of his uh, in terms of his account. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. It is a nonfiction book. Yeah. I tend to take a very broad view of what nonfiction means. Um, so I'm curious about your sense of that and also how that plays in, especially with this subject, which has so many layers, both research and mythological. Sure. Well, well as Joan Didion famously said, in a work of nonfiction, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, um, which is which is you know an ultimate truth. Um, 
Yeah, uh, that that ten year old boy who hacked off that tentacle. Um, it, it could have been Moses Harvey's invention uh, because he wanted to transfer uh, his enthusiasm um, at receiving said tentacle. Um, what happened was um, the fisherman who hacked off that tentacle um, brought it to Moses Harvey's house because uh, he was an amateur naturalist as well as a reverend. And um, and, well, and at that point, they already knew that he was interested in the squid, right? I mean, yeah. everyone in, in town. I've, I forget the quote, but somebody um, was quoted as saying, "Yeah, Moses Harvey was crazy after all things from the sea, or something." And and so, and so they brought him this tentacle, and he was so excited that it. And you should tell it. Say it, it wasn't just a tentacle. I mean, it was like a nineteen foot well, right. long tentacle. Yeah, right. right. So. No, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it wasn't just a little. It wasn't right. a piece of calamari, right? right. right. So. Yeah. So it, it, it didn't. It wouldn't fit into a Prius, let's say. Um, and so, uh, and, and so, so they brought it to his house, and he was so excited. He um he paid him he paid them ten dollars, which was, was which was a, a nice sum in 1874. Um, so of course, when these fishermen uh, uh, found this entire specimen entangled in their herring nets, um, they thought, well, if Moses Harvey paid just the year before ten dollars for a tentacle, what would he pay for the entire thing? And and the answer was ten dollars. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, but uh, I do see. Um, I, I also have a really broad interpretation of nonfiction, and, and we have to by default because I mean it's it's the only genre defined by what it's not. Um, right. It's not fiction, but what is it? And there are so many um, subsidiaries, I guess, of, that fall under the umbrella of, of nonfiction, and um, which is why I was tempted to, to throw essay into a title. Um, the essay is malleable; it's an attempt. Um, the essay grapples towards something rather than presumes certainty, which is why. I, um, it, it, that sort of thing excites me. Um, I, I empathize with works that grapple towards something rather than presume certainty. Um, right. So, uh, yes, it's a wrestling match, really. Right, think, it's right? true. So, yeah. and, you know, yeah. which actually is appropriate metaphor, I think, for for this book, since we are wrestling <laughs> with this massive um, kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. So you and, and you actively conjecture and talk about that. I mean, you create scenes um, in, uh, involving Harvey, involving his wife Sarah. Right. You present them in a sort in a narrative way, but then you double back and say you know, uh, you know, maybe they were doing this, maybe they were doing that, maybe Sarah was doing this when they brought the squid, maybe sure. she had just finished making dinner, or maybe she was doing something else. Um, so I'm curious about that as a kind of... Um, I guess as a strategy, but as a way of opening up the the, the narrative, as it were. Sure. Um, I, I I mentioned I mentioned this in the book too. I'm, I'm all about cueing the reader uh, too. Um, you know, being you know very clear that I'm speculating, um, but. Uh, I was interviewing some folks at the Smithsonian, the folks who um, uh, construct the, uh, uh, the Neanderthalic dioramas and, and all of this, and um, they were basically telling me that, uh, that all they're doing is their best. Um, it's presented as um, natural history and life science, but they admitted that life science is an inexact science, and they were um, basically saying that um, they are allowed, and they allow themselves the professional leeway to speculate, um, to fill in uh the um historic time gaps with with their their own speculation in order to create a narrative that's palatable to an audience um and if life science is an inexact science certainly the essay can be and so um uh i i, I feel as if um 
especially with this book, uh, my my first obligation is to the, is to the art and to the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, than it is to you know just the cold hard facts one after the other. Um, we could we could turn to an almanac for that. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't think. I mean, there's there's some geologists. I wrote a book about earthquakes and stumbled yeah. across this. And um, there was a Dutch geologist who called it geo poetry, oh, which was it. the idea that in geology, particularly seismology, that since events came so far, were so far and few and far between, you had to make poetic leaps of intuition sure. to sort of and then see whether the events played out. But that you were and not only allowed but kind of you know obligated to make those poetic leaps because otherwise how would you further further your understanding do you know the filmmaker Guy Madden um, Mm -hmm. Canadian filmmaker have you seen my Winnipeg no Um, so he's um he makes these wonderful. Uh, f- maybe you know him. He's he's great, but seek him out if you don't. M a d d i n. Most of his films are, are fictional, even though he claims they're autobiographical, and they're they're really strange and oftentimes dealing with fraught mother son relationships. And he scratches the film stock so it looks like an old silent film, and they're usually sonically pretty abrasive. Um, the the city mothers and fathers of uh, Winnipeg actually asked him to. Um, make a, a documentary about Winnipeg that they could show to prospective tourists um, <laughs> so they would come visit uh, their city and, and Guy Madden said have you seen any of my films? Um, well also have you guys have any of you guys ever been to Winnipeg? Right. So that's yes, also sir. another question entirely. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a long night there once. So. <laughs> Did you really? Oh, good Lord. I'm, I'm, I, I think he's still teaching film at the, at the University of Manitoba or something. Right, right. Um, but uh, they gave him money and carte blanche, and he made the strangest meditation on place that I've ever seen in my life. I'm, I mean, it's truly a lyric essay, uh, a cinematic lyric essay. Um, I think Time Magazine called it a docu-fantasia or something. <laughs> but the, the geo-poetry just reminded me of the docu-fantasia. Right, right. I, was like, I love that idea. Then I was like, oh, we have carte blanche. It's geo-poetry. Right, actually, right. You know, then we can do anything we want. So, but I think it is an interesting question because it does, I mean, I guess one question I would ask you is, were you concerned at all? Um, I mean, you do cue the reader a lot. Um, were you concerned at all about reader expectation or having to, I don't want to say walking the reader through the book a little bit, but you know, um, it is a kind of um, angular way of putting together um, an, an essay. Sure, right? yeah. I, um, I was aware of, of reader expectation and I, I was aware that it would probably isolate a certain, mm-hmm. um, a certain audience. Uh, um, I've, I've had some really interesting um, Conversations with uh, with the hard science folks um, about the book, uh, but as, I, I Wait, love. Do you mind? Well, let's let me just let me start. Because I also had hard, interesting conversations yeah. with hard science <laughs> folks about my book. What did your What did your hard science people say? <laughs> <laughs> they, they were they were upset that I was giving credence to Moses Harvey's actual conjectures. Um, uh, that I was actually quoting Moses Harvey's um, writings about the squid um, as if they were fact. Um, but I wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. quoting them as if they were fact. Um, I was hanging out in 1874. Right. Uh, in, um, in Moses for, Harvey's 1874. Bit, that's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I really wanted to recreate that world um, mm-hmm. and uh, to, to basically f- and to force an overlap with what we, knew, what we know now. So, I mean, I also interviewed Steve O'Shea, who, yeah. who was on that submersible a couple years ago. Um, 
that submersible that captured the first ever footage um, of, of the giant squid in its natural habitat. And so, uh, and so they were upset that those um, sorts of mistakes were retained in the book without me necessarily lambasting Harvey for them and calling him out on it. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's right. But, but, but you know, the book isn't science. The book right. reflects science. Right. But it, mm. So, I mean, it's interesting because I think, um, you know, a couple things. One is, one of the most, int- I can't remember who says it now, but at some point, one of the contemporary researchers says, basically, um, the squid we're seeing are either... Um, Six stupid, or there's a third. There are three S's. Oh, um, I can't remember what third one is. <laughs> but essentially, you know, that there is, you know, we they are sort of unknown to us, even though we do have interactions with them, because yeah. the ones that we're connecting with, there's a problem, right? I love the idea of squid being stupid. Like, that there can be smart squid. I mean, I'm perfectly happy to believe that there can be smart and stupid squid, but I love the idea of a scientist actually kind of framing it that way. But, um, yeah, the, the dumb ones come to the surface. You know, they interact with the people, right? So I'm curious about that a little bit, and also that notion because um, one of the people who's in the submersible says we only have 50 feet of visibility. So right. who knows? They could be hanging out 75 feet away, going like, <laughs> you know, like we're not coming close. You know. So there's something really interesting about that interaction, and I wonder was there um, any reaction or any, I mean, or, or any sort of worry on your part about giving the squid that sort of agency, that kind of um, that kind of intelligence? Let's say. I. I wasn't worried about it, um, and uh, I, I don't know if I was lending necessarily the, the, the squid said intelligence, but um, it, it has meant so much to us. It has captivated us um, for years on end, uh, for, again, for whatever reason. I mean, there, there are a lot of mysterious creatures of the deep. Um, there are a lot of creatures about which we know nothing, about which we know a lot less right. uh, than the giant squid. Um, and um, I, so why this? Um, and and this, that, that was the key question, for, for me at least. Um, smart, stupid, um, uh, I'm not sure, but, mm-hmm. but, but certainly compelling um, to us uh, right. for, for whatever reason. Yeah. And I think you, know, you have that great description, the Russian, uh, the Russian ship right. that watches the fight between the, uh, the yeah. squid and the sperm whale and right. actually sort of, you know, what is it, you know the, the, the head of the squid ends up in the sperm whale's belly, but right. the sperm whale ends up, they both end, it's a pyrrhic, actually it's a loss, there's no victory, it's not just a pyrrhic victory, they both end up dead. Right. Right? So, yeah. um, so it is, again, we have not only seen the squid glancingly, we have seen the squid engaged mm-hmm. in you know the fundamental activities of squidness. Yes, right? yeah. So, Battle, feeding, exactly. um, the... Uh, and, and we've examined them in their larval state. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve O'Shea, who was on that submersible, um, in their larval state, they're about as big as cockroaches, uh, or crickets, rather. And um, uh, apparently, I mean, squid in captivity uh, do themselves in. Um, they, uh, well, they either um, cannibalize um, if there's more than one in a, a tank, or um, they swim um, over and over and over again until they scramble themselves um, on the uh, uh, wall of the enclosure. Or if it's open top, they've been known to leap out of it um, and drown themselves in our air on, you know, our pretty linoleum. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
Steve O'Shea, there's this wonderful, um, I mean, I haven't seen the image, of course, but um, he, he describes um, all of this paralarva, these um, larval giant squid having killed themselves, and he, he comes into his laboratory and he sees them all dead on the floor, and he just scoops them up in his hands, and no. Um, yeah, it's just yeah. A, such a beautiful image, but yeah, they're interesting. Yeah, now, um, <laughs> you know, there's a way in which, you know, for all of this movement through time and space, the narrative of the book is really um, locked into a, you know, a single incident or a single, you know, sure. it essentially begins with him, with uh, Harvey going out to, and, uh, to, and finding the squid or, you know, that's from the very beginning and then you kind of move away and then you double back and then you move and back and forth and back and forth and even though we don't actually see him photograph the squid until well into the book and then we sort of see the, you know, the, the saturation of that photograph. Sure. Um, so I'm curious about that too, about that developing time frame or that, that I don't know, that kind of tension between the very narrow time frame and then the, the wide time frame. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that, um, how that developed, that idea of continually bringing it back to that moment? Um, I, uh, I, I, I had to, or else I would just go off and disappear down one tangent and there mm-hmm. would be no book. Um, or the book would be all about ice cream and the squid would be forgotten uh, <laughs> at, the, at the beginning. Um, it was like um, the, the, the tether ball needs its pole and it needs, <laughs> and it needs, and it needs the rope or else, or else, it's, or else what is it? Um, it's no longer a tether ball without right, the tether. Right. It's just a ball. Um, so uh, I, I guess this was a tether ball pole with various tethers, um, which or is sort ten- of which is sort of tentacular. Yeah, I, yeah, I was gonna um, structurally. I I got to the point where. Um, it felt very. It felt like more as if I was layering um, certain subject matter atop of the giant squid, and the giant squid was allowed to bleed through all of it. Um, you know those architectural diagrams where you know you lay down one onion skin atop another, atop another, and then at the end you you kind of concede the finished building. Um, one too many onion skins, and the building collapses. Uh, I I was very careful with all of these threads just to. Um, it, well, to be honest with you, I laid on far too many at the beginning, and then just yeah, had a coma a bunch out. Um, the the one that killed me, um, it, the one that hurt me most to comb out. It was a really long section of the book, and um, was dealing with puppets and and puppet parts um, because I'm, I'm obsessed with puppets. I love puppets, and um, I'm interested in puppeteers. I uh, I was reading Dennis Silk's book, um, uh, William the Wonder Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a playwright and theater critic, essayist, poet. Um, and uh, he has this one wonderful essay called The Marionette Theater that deals with puppet parts, and he dissects puppets for their parts um, in order to find out what a puppet means uh, to him. And it, there was a large section of the book where I was mapping like silks. puppet autopsies. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah, okay. it was really, it was, I mean, it, it is pretty morbid. <laughs> um, but where I was mapping silks engagement of um, puppet parts um, over onto the giant squid so I can examine the squid for its parts mm-hmm. in a similar way. Uh, and that just went on for far too long and was kind of cruel to the reader, I think. So, um, so that one got combed out, but maybe I'll cobble it into another essay. Right, right. How many drafts did you take this through? Oh man, countless. Uh, I'd have to. I, I mean, I'd have to say fifteen. Wow. Um, so how long did it take? When did you? When did you start writing it? Uh, when was I at this? Um, two thousand ten mm-hmm. uh, is when it is when it started. Yeah. So um, I, I spent about three years writing the book, I mm-hmm. think, and then. Um, the rest of it was um, doing with dealing with edits and and so on. So, so a word that keeps coming up. It's come up a bunch of times 
in conversation, it definitely comes up throughout the book, is obsession. So I want to talk to you about that. I want to ask you about that, <laughs> about that as a sort of uh, aesthetic or motivating factor. I mean, we talked a little bit specifically in terms of Harvey, but that notion of, of obsession and what it means in terms of your writing. I mean, this book or just in general. Sure. I, I, I wish I could call it an aesthetic choice. Um, I really wish I could do that. Um, but I, I come from a long line of folks who suffer from OCD. And... Uh, I, I feel as if I am a very like, naturally um, obsessive guy. Um, luckily, I found things like this onto which to latch um, so I could channel it so I don't triple-check my locks every right. night before bed um, uh, or triple-check my locks three times over um, every night before bed. So um, I, I guess I'm attracted to other obsessives, mm-hmm. um, too. And then I, I guess I'm attracted to cultural obsession also um, as a result. Uh, is, is that just a, a meandering way of saying self-interest? I, I, I don't know. Well, no, it, <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, obsession is what you, you have to, yeah. if you're going to sit down and work on a book every day for three years right. or even longer, you have to have some kind of, obs- only an obsessive right. would actually think that that was a, a good way to spend your time. I say sure. this as someone who thinks it's a good way to spend your time. But, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. um, you know, so, so there's that. Also, I think it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that the book does even you know with with its sort of I don't want to say experimental structure because it's I think it's quite accessible but with that sort of serendipitous or meandering structure is it does sort of hang around a character I mean in the way that you know Harvey we could say Harvey is sort of the protagonist of the book or the relationship between sure. you as the investigator and Harvey as the subject right and so Harvey's upset there has to be something that hooks you and Harvey's obsession or some link between those two things we need that personality that character to keep sure. coming back and and they're both there so that's not really a question, but if you want to respond to that, it's a, there, there should be a question mark at the end of that. So let's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I think one of the thing that, one of the things the book uh, really wants to do is to stitch together obsessions, mm-hmm. um, mine, Harvey's cultural obsessions, and then pull back and comment on. Um, those obsessions separately and comment on the the, the stitching of them together mm-hmm. uh, too certainly yeah mm-hmm. um, should we turn it over to you guys have some questions yeah. let's turn it over to some questions from Floor. don't be shy how do you feel as a chef about um, the popularity of squid right now <laughs> um I feel good about it. Uh, the um, I did an event in Brooklyn. It was great. Uh, there, um, it was, uh, this guy Jeff Waxman runs this series called the Book Plate Series, um, where Greenlight Bookstore works with Peck's Specialty Foods, and the chef there um, actually creates a multi-course uh, tasting menu um, based on the book that's that's being highlighted. So, so every. Um, uh, every course had squid in it, uh, which was kind of fascinating. And of course, there was a squid ink ice cream I was um, say. that came out. Um, squid ink doesn't have it's it's not very dominant on the palate. Um, it adds a lot of color. I mean, there's a little flavor to it. I mean, it basically looked like this really lovely jet black um, ice cream and tasted like vanilla. So um, yeah, so I'm I'm happy about it. I I I love it. I I eat quite a bit of it. Um, I, I take my obsession into me quite literally, yeah, here and there. So. Although now that that ejaculate story gives me pause, I also like yeah. it too. But oh, you got you got to take a risk. Man, right. I guess. Yeah. So. There is risk. There is nothing. Exactly. So. Other questions. That kind of leads me to a question, um, which is that from the opening, when you talk about the lens of it, it's sexy. 
there's a lot of sex <laughs> and sexiness in your interrogation of the giant squid and in your interrogation of Harvey's obsession and just obsession in general. Can you talk a little bit about Well, first that? of all, I wrote it in my underpants. Um, <laughs> but and there is that one section that deals with giant squid erotica. Uh, yeah. I um. <laughs> this, is a, this is a phenomenon. That was yeah. right, right. I mean, that, that that was the only moment um uh where I was overtly thinking sexually or erotically about the squid. I guess. Um, I don't know. I, I I fall in love with words. I guess. Um, I like bumping and grinding with them. Um, and so uh, I, I I find um. I get, I get excited trying to create some sort of lyrical upsweep with language here and there and to create a lushness, maybe a curvaceousness um, with language here and there. I like girdling things, maybe. I, um, that's all I'm going to say about that. I could go on and on, frankly. But, but that would grow tires. <laughs> Do you work on more than one project at a time? Did it, or did it help that you had different sections so that if you felt stunned and you were on a different one? Or? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, um, I put things, uh, if I latch onto something and I feel like I need to get that out, I'll put something else on the back burner and then return to it. But I, I, I usually won't return to it until that other thing is done. So I'm not sure if that's working on something at the same time or, or not. Like, I, I, yeah, I probably won't sit down on a Monday and work on one project and then on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and work on another. Um, so uh, I have put things on the back burner and then re- returned to them once I've kind of exhausted, uh, let's say, something like something like this. I'll go back to an old project and, and see what I can do you with have it. have a longer like, attention span, I think, than <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, that that happens all the time during the process, um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm stubborn. Yeah, you gotta finish, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's what didn't I think Nichols and Baker said that you, you know, you have everybody has all those unfinished sure. projects in the drawer, but you can't actually, you can't fix it if it's not finished. I'll, finish. I'll, ne- I'll, I'll never fall asleep. Um, right. Like I, I'll, I'll just, you know, constantly be thinking about it, and, um, and I'll, yeah, have an anxiety attack or something. So, yeah, I'll, I have to too. Martin, yeah, I got a follow-up question uh, to that. Uh, do you squeeze in poetry between the, the fiction projects intermittently? Although some of your poetry is essayistic and it's in its in its own, <laughs> it's got some qualities of it. But you know, you're always writing poetry while you're writing fiction. I uh, I I I am actually. Um, so, um, but not necessarily working on a project unless an individual poem is a project. Uh, but I feel like yeah, that's um, happening a lot for me. Um, uh, Prose is definitely more of a labor for me, um, which is why I um, am so in love with it now. I'm, I'm forced to think about it more, I guess. Uh, I remember uh, the, the poet Mike Madonic said sometimes with poetry, um, it's as if, uh, you know, there's this kind of collective nebulous cloud hovering up there in the cosmos that he liked to call the celestial monochord and every so often like like a water spout you know it would leak and it's our just it's our duty to stand there with our bucket and collect the drips um i feel like that happens sometimes with poems i get a, i get attacked by a line that i just kind of want to clone a poem around um here and there even while i'm working on a longer piece of prose so sure yeah other questions 
Um, you know, I have to forgive me. I only heard like the last half of your reading. You may have already touched on this, but I wanted to know if you delved at all into or are familiar with maybe the influence of the idea of the giant squid or the tentacles and, and its relationship to like H.P. Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythology. Yeah. Uh, is, is that in your book at all, or did you decide, your, have you dealt with that at all, intellectually? Um, I have, yeah. I actually read a lot um, about that, and there was a lot of that in an early draft, or some of that in an early draft, um, but a lot of that wound up on the cutting room floor, sadly. Um, I was just engaging so many uh, um, aspects of you know, the giant squid in literature, and um, scientific interrogation, um, religious interrogation, and, and and sadly that um, that it's was amorphous. it is yeah <laughs> it's, I think it's like a modern representation of what you were talking about with uh, the religious aspect and and the scholastic tendency to interpret the squid as the devil fish and the, sure uh, I don't know if I don't remember if Lovecraft himself used tentacles as an imagery but it definitely has become connected to his mythology sure all the representations of the Cthulian <laughs> word mythology constantly are have representations of tentacles on faces or whatever. Right. Yeah. So it seems like there's definitely something about the idea of the giant squid that truly encapsulates the human idea of the monster. It yeah. is truly a monster that actually lives in our world. And that's I know that's what's fascinating to me about it. It involves yeah. all the things that we kind of consider to be a monster. The giant eye that right. looks at you like a human. <laughs> Completely alien, right? Sure. And yeah. then, I'm sorry, my second half of my question yeah. is if you know at all, some of the stuff that you guys were talking about brought this up for me, is if you uh, looked at all into the experiments done on the intelligence of, of octopus and, and the idea of uh, non-vertebrate intelligence and how shockingly smart they seem to be, and that that might have a relationship to why they're jumping out of tanks and killing themselves. Sure. And stuff, like, like, the, like the whales at SeaWorld. Yeah, I mean, there there's certainly um, engagements of squid intelligence in here, too. Um, I stayed away from the octopi, again, um, just because I, I, tr I tried to laser focus in on the squid. Uh, the, book, the book is so digressive um, in a lot of ways that when it returned to uh, the tentacular, um, it returned to, yeah, um, specifically the giant squid, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Other, any other questions? Other questions? Yeah. <laughs> um, essayistically, right now, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with um, carrier pigeons uh, and um, their role in uh, South African diamond mines. Um, my wife is from South Africa, and we were actually in um, diamond mining country uh, uh, not too long ago, and I was talking to a lot of folks there, um, uh, diamond smuggling. Um, was captivating me for a while, and one of the ways in which uh, folks would um, smuggle diamonds out of the mines after they instituted uh, the x-ray, because folks were swallowing them, um, is via carrier, they would train pigeons and attach diamonds um, to the pigeons and uh, just send them to their spouses, um, who would then untie the diamonds and then... Um, 
they would they would go live it up. Uh, but um, eventually, uh, they began to overload uh, the pigeons, <laughs> and they lost their natural GPS, I guess. And they just um, all all over um, Port Nolith, South Africa, for instance, uh, there was just a rash of pigeons falling from the sky at random um, with diamonds tied to them. Uh, and so, uh, I think that image is what first captivated me, and now I, I just kind of um, I'm thinking a lot about. Uh, uh, that too. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, I, I could see that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> well, because I'm working on this novel now too, um, and so, so okay. All right. All right. Okay. <laughs> other stuff? Any other questions? Well, thank, thank you very you much. So much. No, that was a blast. Doing this. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Was that was really yeah. fun. And the book is great. It. Really, thank really you. good. Thank you so much. So thank you, everybody. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.